0: Hello, James Kenny here, and welcome to my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset: The Evolution of the Irish from Biblical Times. This is episode 21, entitled The Unfortunate Great Hunger, 1845 to 1849. This episode includes as an outro the original song written and performed by Yours Truly, called What a Shame. I hope you liked this episode. At the head of the Young Ireland movement, there blazed a galaxy of genius in the persons of poets, orators, scholars, writers, and organizers. Daniel O'Connell feared for his pacifist ideals in the face of the military action proposed by the new party of the youth. The years weighed heavy on his shoulders and in his feeble state he thought to counteract and fetter the young agitators in his party. He framed a test declaration for all members of the association repudiating the use of physical force. On the 27th of July, 1846, the young Ireland leaders refused to sign the test and walked out. This action led to two bitterly opposed and hostile parties, choosing different approaches in their efforts to try and overcome the hated Act of Union. While dissension was rife among the Irish, another more insidious demon stalked the land The people lay dead in their thousands, on the highways and in the fields, because the staple food of the masses, the potato, had failed, through being devastated with a fungus called the blight. It was estimated at the time that there was an abundance of food in the country, and it was reliably proven that the corn exported from Ireland during 1846, would alone have sufficed to feed a much larger population. Yet the people were allowed to die in their thousands, in what Cecil Woodham Smith called the Great Hunger, when describing, in her book of the same title, the plight of the Irish in that wasted, famine-stricken nation. The following story, entitled... A Visit to Ireland in Troubled Times, is an extract from the publication Leisure Hour. Published in 1863, gives an idea of the state of Ireland as seen at first hand by an unacknowledged English visitor. The story goes, the year 1846 was drawing to a close, when my friend and college chum, Charles Vernon met me in my chambers one day to discuss the pros and cons of a Christmas expedition to the Emerald Isle. Having duly considered the matter, we decided to start by mail train the next evening, but one for Holyhead and thence to Dublin, in which city we proposed to spend Saturday and Sunday. Accordingly, we tightly packed Portmanthus of a small size. In due course we arrived at Euston Square Station, when, after the usual routine of ticket-taking and looking into one carriage after another to guard against babies, we at length ensconced ourselves in comfortable corners and felt fairly committed to our journey. Passing over the tediousness of the journey and the discomfort of the voyage, I hasten to introduce you, along with ourselves, most courageous reader, to the Gresham in Sackville Street, where warm baths and comfortable rooms soon recompensed us for the wretchedness we had undergone. In fact, our night's unpleasantness only enhanced our present enjoyment. A good breakfast at ten o'clock put us still more at ease with ourselves. And as soon as it was over, We reconnoitered our whereabouts from the window. A splendid street spread to the right and left, having a view on the left of the lofty column erected in honour of Nelson and flanked on the right by the rotunda and its adjacent gardens. Having seen so much from the window, we descended to the street and chartered a vehicle called an outside car for the day, directing the driver to take us by the most celebrated sights in and about the city of Dublin, giving us a side nod. As much as to say, I'm the boy that can do it, he set out at a good round pace, going down the length of Sackville Street and turning sharp off to the right, along a fine line of quays, past the forecourts, to the park, where he significantly pointed out the Fifteen Acres, celebrated in olden times as the dueling ground and famous for its often recurring reviews. Manny's the fine man that was left there quivering on a daisy, was the remark of our driver, as we drove on after inspecting the ground. Having got a glimpse of the Viceregal Lodge, we returned back to the city, seeing all the principal buildings, until six o'clock, at which time we had ordered dinner. The next day being Sunday, we went, by the advice of one of the hotel staff, to hear the celebrated preacher, now Bishop of Cork, and were very much struck by his earnest, vehement manner and peculiar intonation of voice. At three o'clock we went to St. Patrick's Cathedral and heard a good sermon and splendid choral service, after which we spent the evening quietly in our hotel, having to start by coach at seven o'clock the next morning for the country and the county where our friends resided. A dark morning with a heavy drizzle rain was a very uninviting prelude to our day's proceedings. But making ourselves up as well as we could, we reached the Hibernian, in time to take two inside seats. After a tiresome journey, we arrived about seven o'clock in the evening at the small town of L, where our road branched off and a post car was to do the duty instead of the stage. A poor-looking alehouse did itself the honour of figuring as the hotel, it being pretty evident that very few travellers availed themselves. Of its hospitalities, and considerable bustle greeted our advent. Several maidens with bare legs and feet and rather unkempt locks darted from various nooks and passages to take a look at the strangers. Having intimated we wished to proceed to our friend's abode, which we ascertained was to be reached through twenty miles of chiefly bog road, our landlord though strongly advising us to halt for the night, went out to give directions for the post-car to come around. It was not long before a rushing, clattering sound up a narrow entry beside the house gave notice that our vehicle was ready. So hastily, finishing our tumblers of steaming hot whiskey punch, we proceeded to arrange ourselves and our luggage on the hard-seated, stiff-backed car, and having got clear of the town, tried to get a view of our driver and the road by the straggling beams of the moon. The road was overhung by leafless branches of gigantic trees, and as lonely as any hermit could desire, our driver, who had his hat pulled over his brow, in a dogged kind of way, drove on, for three or four miles, without speaking a word. At last he said, in a meaning tone, Have ye any friends on the road, gentlemen? We assured him we had not the pleasure of being known to a single individual between the town we had left and the abode of our friend. Ah, it isn't that I mean at all, he said, impatiently, "'Sure I mayn't have ye any friends on the road that'll spake a good word for ye?' "'Speak a good word for us? For what?' I inquired. "'Ara, is that all you know about it?' he demanded, in a mixed tone of surprise and contempt, that strongly excited our curiosity. "'Musha, then. It's meself that I'd rather not be in your place tonight.' And ye on the bog road to Musha, what possessed ye to come on at all? I wonder. If you will explain yourself, said I, we will be greatly obliged to you. Explain myself, is it? Waitin' that's as he done anyhow. Don't you know that bad times that's in it, with the poor, the creatures. "'and there's them on the road "'that I think little of, of giving ye a warm reception. Sure, 'twas twas only last week "'that man I was driving was murdered "'in the hollow there beyond. "'He was something like yourselves "'and wouldn't be advised. "'I had liked to be murdered too along with him. "'Only one of the boys knew me. "'Sure the car was broke in the scuttle with them dragging him off. The sorrow's such a fight I saw yet in all me born days, but I'm varm now, and it's not for myself I'm afeard. The boys won't touch me for a reason, but truth, I wouldn't be ye for something, and if ye'll take my advice, gentlemen, ye'll put off your drive till the daylight and it'll be bad enough then too, maybe. Having hastily consulted as to what was best to be done, and being quite convinced of the sincerity of the man, from the earnestness by which he spoke, we directed him to turn back, thinking it better to risk sleeping in a comfortable room, and to bear with such fare and attendance as we could get, rather than sleep perchance too well after attentions, that it was more than hinted, would not prove very agreeable. We were by no means sorry when the lights in the town were once more discernible, and soon forgot our mishaps, over a dish of eggs and bacon, enjoyed by a roaring turf fire, our beds turned out to be soft and comfortable, and after breakfast we again essayed to reach the mansion of Mr. Winton. For fifteen miles the road, after we had passed the point of our return on the previous night, lay high, and with very few turnings, through a bog. Miserable cabins were erected at long intervals in places that seemed unfit to shelter pigs, much less than human beings for two or three of them gaunt famine-stricken creatures stared with lacklustre eyes upon us as we drove past and our small stock of sandwiches was speedily exhausted among them to give money in that desolate region seemed a mockery about halfway on this seemingly interminable road We saw a figure lying beside a bog-hole, and got off the car to see what it was. It proved to be a man whose tall, bony form was not more than half covered by filthy rags. The contorted limbs were of skeleton thinness, and the skin covered his jaws was almost gummed together. So sunken were they, scarcely any pulsation was perceptible and though not past the middle age, it was evident that this once powerful man was perishing miserably of famine. We had not a morsel of food left, if we even could have succeeded in getting him to take it, and forced a few drops of brandy from our flask into his blackened lips. We drove on as fast as we could to send someone to his assistance. At a short distance we found a cabin, as miserable as the others we had passed, and gave warning to the inmates of the state of the man we had just discovered. Two or three men who were there immediately hurried off, as well as their trembling limbs would carry them, to try and rescue the poor creature. But I fear all human help was vain. An old woman who sat crouched up in the corner by the fire said, It must be poor Mick Whalen, the poor soul. He dragged himself there to die, sure it's here he had his bit of a cabin. But the landlord knocked it down when his wife and children were dying, of the fever and the famine, and together poor things. And sure Mick himself took it then, and had nowhere to lie but in the bog. Oh, then woe be to them that drove him out of the world. Decent man that he was. Finding we couldn't do anything more, we proceeded on our way, with many sad reflections on the terrible scene we had witnessed, and on reaching the small town of R, about two miles from our friend's abode, we drove to the police barracks, hoping to induce them to see after the unfortunate man, but they assured us that those losses were quite common and it would be impossible for them to attend to them all. Sick at heart, we drove through the town, thinking over all we had heard and seen. But at the corner of one of the streets, we were startled out of our reverie by the sight of a great crowd assembled, inside and outside a baker's shop. Men, women, and children, overcome with hunger, crowded together, catching the loaves as they were tossed out from hand to hand by those inside the shop, who stood on the counters and scaled the highest shelves to get at the bread for which so many were famishing. The baker stood looking on, without making an attempt to stop them. Indeed, any such attempt would have been worse than useless. To such a pitch of desperation were those famine-stricken, driven by maddening hunger, Mothers tore their loaves in half to give the soft inside part to the little infants in their arms. And gaunt men, with wolfish eyes, devoured the bread more like beasts of prey than human beings. Turning from this fearful picture of human misery, we found ourselves on a winding road that led to our friend's home, where we received the most hospitable welcome and at seven o'clock sat down to a dinner table on which nothing was forgotten that could conduce to comfort. It presented a striking contrast to the scene of the morning, and we could scarcely enjoy the good things so abundantly provided in the retrospect. We heard the music and dancing were kept up until nearly four o'clock in the morning, but we retired early and slept very soundly after the various adventures we had undergone. These festivities were no doubt due to the idea of showing all possible hospitality to visitors. Looking back now, however, in more sober years, there is a more painful remembrance, as if the rich showed heartless levity amidst the famine and distress of their poor neighbours. The family included visitors, of whom there were six besides ourselves, two of them being ladies, assembled for breakfast about noon, coffee having been sent round early to the bedrooms, and soon after a variety of vehicles, including a male phaeton and the always-to-be-met outside car, came round. On and inn, which, depositing ourselves, we took a delightful drive through a beautiful domain and by some picturesque roads to a celebrated ruin, returning only in time to dress for dinner, again where the festivities continued until late into the night. My friend and I, whose rooms opened onto each other, had not long resigned ourselves to sleep when the hollow droning sound of a solid body of men marching in close vicinity of the house made us jump out of bed and rush to the windows of my room which overlooked the town to endeavour to discover what it was in the dim light we could discover a compact body of men numbering probably from four to five hundred who were halted in the open part of the lawn, just opposite the house. With wonderful precision, they went through a series of military movements, some four or five individuals acting as commanders. After more than an hour's drill, the order to march was given, and the whole body moved off in quick time, the heavy tramp being quite soldierly in its regularity. Vernon and I were puzzled to assign a reason for this extraordinary drill, at such a time and place, and eagerly questioned our host about it at breakfast. "'Ah, they are at it again, are they?' he remarked. "'Well, I am surprised I did not hear them, but I suppose they came round by plantation at your end of the house, and kept on the grass.' "'Precisely,' said Vernon. "'But what does it mean, my dear sir?' "'Mean?' cried our host, why it means that they are rebels, or ribbon men, or whatever you like to call them, preparing for the field, which they hope soon to take under the auspices of Mr. Smith O'Brien, or some other equally liable subject. Ribbon men was a nineteenth-century popular movement of poor Catholics in Ireland. They were active against landlords and their agents, and opposed Orangism. The ideology of the Protestant Orange Order. Historians disagree over the extent to which ribbon men was an organized network of conspirators, as opposed to unrelated local groups whose similar actions were not coordinated. AC Murray suggests that any unsolved agrarian crimes after the White Boys and before the Land League were conveniently blamed on ribbonmen. What? I exclaimed, is it possible that within a few miles of a garrison town, they are not afraid to venture on such an experiment? Fear does not seem to be a word that has a place in their vocabulary, answered Mr. Winton. If you stay with us a little while, you will see and hear stranger things than this. I am not afraid of them, for my father and grandfather never ejected a tenant, or gave information against any of the country people in that troubled times. Although many things came under their observation that would have been dangerous to their neighbours if made known, I have followed in their steps. Consequently, while others are fired at and injured in many ways, I am a kind of privileged person. Come, finish your breakfast. We have a hard day's shooting before us. Vernon and I exchanged glances, not feeling altogether easy in the idea of being, as we evidently were, surrounded by a disaffected body of people, and only depending on a continuance of a certain kind of feeling for immunity from danger and possible loss of life. We could not understand the necessity of late hours and watchful guardianship, during those long winter nights, and also fully appreciated that feeling that induced the gentlemen of the party always to have loaded guns within reach. Leaving the ladies on the lawn, practising at a target with pistols, we took our departure for the shooting ground, and bagged a good number of birds, before the darkness warned us that it was time to return to the house. One or two neighbouring parties joined us at dinner and as we sat over our wine between eight and nine o'clock the sound of footsteps stealthily creeping by the windows which were close to the ground made every man hold his breath to listen but at a sign from Mr. Winton the conversation went on as if no cause for alarm existed. Again the steps sounded distinctly as if the persons outside were coming closer to the windows to listen to the conversation within. Well, said our host, in a low tone, it may be that, like others, my time has come. So if they attack the house, we will place the ladies and the children in the upper rooms and we will station ourselves on the lobbies so as to command the staircase. You have your guns, I believe, to the gentlemen who were dining with us yes certainly was the reply we never go without them though like you we have not much fear of any attack but they are now ready loaded all right said mr winton you all know what to do in case they should attack us just as he spoke the blow as of a musket end on the hall door made us all start here they are sure enough said our host now for a bold face and getting to the hall door he demanded who's there quite in an unsuspecting tone of voice good evening to you sir we're friends so open the door if you please responded a voice from outside certainly not at this time of night until i know who you are and what you want replied mr winton Oh, then, Mr. Winton called out another voice. It's yourself that knows well, enough what we want. Hand out the guns, sir, and we'll be off with ourselves. Be off with yourself this moment, without them, said Mr. Winton, in a determined tone. The guns are here, well loaded, and you'll get the contents of them first, I promise you. So don't break the peace between us. Come, boys, go off quietly. "'I never injured any of you, so don't try and injure me.' "'Sure enough you never did,' responded the first speaker. "'But we have our orders, sir, to get the guns, because we're short of them.' "'You may tell my answer to whoever ordered you,' rejoined Mr. Winton. "'And mind, the first man that lays a hand on this hall door to force it in will be sorry for it once.' And that will be always. You know me, that I'll keep my word. So go away quietly, or it may be worse for you. A whispering conversation took place outside. And after a short debate, one who had not spoken before called out. All you say, sir, is true. And you're never made mischief again any poor boy. Though you're often had it in your power. And we won't annoy you. Never fear us, sir. We'll never do an injury to one belonging to you. Good night, sir. Good night, boys. Go home now, said our host. Walking into the dining room and taking his place at the table, as if nothing unusual had occurred, he remarked. I guessed they wouldn't play me such a dog's trick. I'm not a bit afraid of them. Again Vernon and I exchanged glances, as the same idea presented itself to us both, that London with all its smoke and fog, might be a proverbial place to the county of, just at present. Our visitors took leave of us, at our usual breaking-up hour, setting off singing as gaily as if no such thing as a ribbon society existed, but then too, they too, were privileged individuals. The author, and his friend Vernon, continued to stay at the Winton residence and have a full week of shooting and parties before returning to London. The area outside of Dublin visited by them is redacted in the publication and the author's name is withheld. However, I feel it gave a very clear picture of the state of affluence, hunger and public squalor which existed in Ireland during the famine years and there appears to be no shortage of food for the privileged classes. Whatever about the starving millions? About one million people died during the Great Famine of 1845 to 1849 from starvation or from typhus and other famine-related diseases, and an estimated two million more emigrated from the country. Furthermore, historians have since concluded that large quantities of food were exported from Ireland primarily to Great Britain during the blight, such as livestock and butter. Research suggests that exports may have actually increased during the potato famine. In 1847 alone, records indicate that commodities such as peas, beans, rabbits, fish and honey continue to be exported from Ireland, even as the great hunger ravaged the countryside.
1: Hunger, pain and sorrow Stops, most thoughts in my brain As I lie prepared to die My family have all gone Before Oh no! The blight is blamed For our sad demise The landlord put us out On the road But all this time you could have You could have saved our lives If you only alone.